You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're you in 30 years. Whoa. Some advice. Open a Laurel Road checking account when you refinance your student loans. You could get a rate as low as 1.37% variable APR, plus a cash bonus. I can do that. Also, don't date Parker. Ew, the defense attorney? Trust me. Save yourself with Laurel Road. Visit laurelroad.com slash save yourself for more information. Rates depend on your credit profile and include discounts. Terms and conditions apply. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank, member FDIC. Episode 156, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Aaron Pomerantz. He's a Ph.D., in social psychology, and he specializes in health policy, political psychology, and conspiracy theories. Perfect for this episode, because we're going to be talking about COVID, of course, and we're going to discuss today the problem with messaging and Dr. Peter Sandman at the SIDRAP site, and that'll be linked to in the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 156, as well as other links uh, that we mentioned in the show, other shows that related to this episode. But we're going to focus on the erosion of public trust within public institutions, specifically public health. We're going to look at the psychological profiles that cause this problem, what is the psychology that is, goes into groupthink, and what could be done to promote and restore the trust that's been lost with these institutions, if at all. I think you'll find the discussion very interesting. Dr. Pomerantz is very knowledgeable in psychology, and he special, like I said, to conspiracy theories and how they form. I would highly, highly, highly recommend that you go and read, at some point, the article written by Dr. Sandman. It is excellent. It goes over the problems that have occurred in the COVID pandemic with messaging and then how things can be sort of fixed, although mainly he just goes into the problems and the failures and what should be done during a pandemic. How you actually build back those relationships is not specifically addressed in his paper, which is why I wanted to have Dr. Pomerantz on for the show. But it's kind of a longer episode, so I wanted to keep this introduction short. Again, thanks to all my new listeners from We Are Libertarians. So without further ado, can we repair trust in public health with Dr. Aaron Pomerantz? Enjoy. All right. Well, hi. I'm here with my friend, Dr. Aaron Pomerantz. He's an assistant professor of psychology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas. He received his PhD in social psychology from the University of Oklahoma in 2021 and researches social judgments and decision-making in the areas of psychology and law, health psychology, and political psychology. And we're going to be talking about the paper written by Dr. Peter Sandman at the SIDRAP uh, as a guest writer 
and he's an expert in risk communications. It's titled Commentary, Eight Things U.S. Pandemic Communication Communicators Still Get Wrong. You can find a link to that at the show notes, which I'd highly recommend you read the whole thing since we're only going to discuss a portion of that today. You can find that at theparadox.com slash 156. Aaron, thanks so much for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me. It's it's very weird to be called doctor by an actual medical doctor. Like I'm very... I'm very used to being called Dr. Pomerantz by a bunch of, you know, 18 to 22-year-olds. <laughs> but I definitely, like, when I, when I go to the doctor, like, I'm like, yes, I'm Aaron Pomerantz, PhD, not, <laughs> don't call me doctor. We so. have all kinds of people who throw the doctor thing around in the hospital who, you know, most people would not consider doctors, too. So they're, it just it kind of depends who you are. Uh, and, <laughs> I, and I always tell people, you know, I have, it's hard because I've been in practice now quite a while, and I've experienced this now where, uh, you know, I'm just Eric, right, for most of my partners, or I should say new new people on the partner track. It's like two years in our group. And they'll call me Dr. Larson. I'm like, really, it's very unsettling for you to call me <laughs> Dr. Larson. You're another anesthesiologist. Med students, nurses, I'm okay with that, you know, and even lots of nurses just call me by my first name. So anyway, <laughs> it's something that takes I mean, a while to get used to. I'm still getting used to it because both of my parents are Dr. Pomerantz. My dad's a medical doctor and my mom's a PhD. And so people say Dr. Pomerantz, and I still have that like – my parents aren't here, dude. Like they're this is Texas. They're they're in New Jersey. Oh right, me. Yeah, yeah. What do you want? It's so like it's, the it's, first it's, time you get Mister. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm like I'm not old. I'm not old. But yeah. And then then I you know then you have talk to, to them and I'm before like, you know it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah well, there you go. Let's talk about this piece because I, I when I read this a couple uh, weeks ago I tried to get uh, Dr. Salmon on and he's um, was unavailable and he's older and he's not really doing interviews at this point. He's uh, later in his career, just kind of writes things for, um, on his, on risk communication. But I think it went over a lot of really good things. So we're going to talk about COVID and sort of specifically what, what people who have been communicating risk, who've been making, setting policy and what they've been doing wrong. And he had plenty of examples for what you need to do during a public health crisis and what, you know, what has been done or what's been uh, going on right now. So I always want to start by talking about the mistakes. He highlighted five mistakes. One is that the public health officials were over-reassuring to the public. Uh, second, they panicked and overreacted often. They flubbed the rationale for the lockdowns. Uh, they abandoned the flatten the curve strategy, or at least the messaging, and they insisted that public health would be in charge. So I think we can all think, if we're being honest with ourselves, we can imagine all those problems with all five of those points if, that we've seen in the last almost two years now in the messaging. Which of those do you think has been the biggest problem? Because um, one thing that has clearly happened is there's been erosion of trust with the public for, towards public health officials, specifically the FDA and CDC, and of course, you know, local health departments and things like that by ex by extension. Which of those do you think has been sort of the biggest the biggest problem when it comes to the erosion of trust? I think I'm going to give an unsatisfying answer, but one that I often give as a as a social psychologist, and that's <laughs> like I don't think you can pick. It depends would be my answer. Sure. And that's the that's the unsight. It's, it's any 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 statistical discipline always says it it depends and it sucks to give that answer. Um, but I think really if you asked like if you grabbed five people off the street and you said what was the and one I don't think you'd have many of them um, be. I think I don't think you'd have a lot of them be totally approving of of the government's handling of COVID. Um, and I think you'd have five different answers. Certainly, I could say what I found more obnoxious and I you know and, and I would say definitely though that last one of public health being in charge but I think uh, they're all symptomatic of just a real underlying arrogance on and and not just an arrogance but a a clueless arrogance 
behind how they've chosen to communicate about COVID. And each of these has really seriously undermined um, trust from the public, like you pointed out. And it was actually interesting as I read the article. I was I was putting on like my health psychologist brain, uh, and I, I didn't think I'd you know my three areas of, of research uh, focus on health psychology, psychology and law, and uh, within political psychology, I really like uh, looking into uh, both psychology and religion and conspiracy theories, and those kind of feed into each other. And I was yeah, like, oh, this would be a health yeah, psychology right. thing. And I really, I, health psychology really didn't come up for me as I was reading this. It, the first thing that came up to me was really this this idea that comes from the psychology of the justice system, and that that is legitimacy. Uh, how do you do you view a government as having a rightful authority? I mean, it's really just psychological. Con- it's making a psychological construct out of the idea of consent of the governed, and we like to pretend that everything we do as humans is rational and and and, and, cal- and calm, cool, and collected, and orderly. But in reality, it's not. And letting people have control over us, is, I think, is more tenuous than people like, to, certainly the people in authority would like to admit. So when you have, you know, like, like let's start with the over-reassuring. Um, there's, a, there's a trust that's necessary for there to be legitimacy of any government entity or any, any entity in general, right? Like, you know, you... You don't you you would you wouldn't trust if you're extending your kid to a school you and the, and they tell you you know we're, we're gonna and they're promising you the sky about your kid's intellectual and academic outcomes like you're probably gonna set off alarm bells right to say nothing of if they make promises that they can't keep and I thought the over reassuring was definitely a huge harm to legitimacy because it undermined that trust and it it you know they're they're making promises that not only that they can't keep but they didn't have the power to enact. Um, the, you know, it's, it's going back to even the the, the 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 Trump administration. You know, he he admitted he enacted a bunch of executive actions that he really weren't in his authority, and the entirety is well, this will fix it, and then it didn't, and then you know, you just public trust continues to erode. Uh, I would say as far as like panicking and overreacting, that's the same thing. You know, when, when you cry wolf too many times, people are going to swing the other way. And when you say there is no wolf and there ends up being a wolf, people are going to swing the other way. You, you can't be alarmist and you can't underplay something. And it's been really odd how the government has done both. Yeah. I say the government. Generally, when I say the government, I'm probably referring to uh, Fauci. Sure. In this discussion. Um, but I mean, the CDC is a, it's a government entity, and, and uh, you know, oh, things are gonna. I, I, I was forced. I'm forced to be reminded of other times this has happened in society. You know, people when they panic and they overreact. I mean, we even see it today. People are talking about once again, you know, shutting down schools, going back to full March 2020 because of the Omicron variant. Right. And it's like we don't. Uh, admittedly, I, I'm. I'm. Maybe I'm a bad person for admitting this, but I'm just so burned out on COVID stuff. And I, I am vaxxed. I am boosted. Um, I'm like, okay, bring it on. There's nothing we can do anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, it's not like I've been sitting. But again, I'm, I'm, I, I, don't, I think, honestly, in some ways, that's the healthy response is not to just sit there and go, oh, my gosh, like this is not in my control. I don't have control over a germ. I have things that are actually under my control, like trying to get enough sleep with a newborn kid, uh, like trying to prep for my classes, like trying to get my grading done. Uh, the Omicron variant really isn't under my control. But from what little I've even seen, we don't know enough about this. That seems to be the biggest thing from the actual reputable sources. Surely you can you can speak to this more. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we, I, and I would, 
I would guess I would summarize what you said is so you sort of you have equal parts paternalism from the government and sort of uh, r and then other it's just uh, I would say not incompetence but impotence right the the reassurance the the ability to control things that are clearly outside the control or sort of understanding right and and it seems like those are the two driving factors for the fact that people no longer trust what they hear because although they may feel in some levels the government can deliver on some of those things or they have the knowledge they clearly don't at other times and and you know i i don't know i mean is that is that a typical sort of thing you see psychologically like once people start doubting things i guess it goes to the conspiracy theories right because you have people who have misinformation you have all these other um things that are going on and I would imagine that that helps feed those sorts of viewpoints and um, positions, right? I mean, is is that I mean is that accurate that 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 those the, things is what, what drives yeah, the problems? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's been kind of the biggest thing for me. Um, well, not the the biggest. There's so many things that have gone wrong with the. Yeah, there's a lot of big COVID. things. This thing, yeah, right. Yeah, but this this is one of them. Uh, I forget who wrote this article. I don't even remember much of the articles that I just remember the headline and it was that Anthony Fauci is the biggest advocate for the anti-vaccine movement we have seen in a hundred years. And it was not a, it was, this was not like, this was not, you know, from some website that gives your virus, that gives a computer every single virus right. you can imagine. This was from a reputable news source. And I, I really agreed with that art. I really agree with that idea because con one thing, even before COVID, vaccines, you know, were an issue for me. There's there's so much interesting psychology that goes into how people become anti-vax or pro-vax and how that goes. And conspiracy theories especially, it's, it's a very emerging and exciting area of research. And we know there's a link between distrust of the government and tendency towards conspiracy theory. And conspiracy theories, the, the problem with studying them psychologically is that there's a difference between a conspiracy theory and just a conspiracy uh, one of the bigger papers in this area even points this out. Like it's, it's, it's this is one of those granddaddy papers that if you do scientific writing and you don't cite this one, um, you're in trouble. And he he talks about the fact that 20 years ago, if somebody had said the government was spying on all of us through our computers, we'd have thought that person was a tinfoil hat. But here we are, and well, the article was written 2018, 2019. Now we're in 2021 same thing right like we know that the government does that so there, there is some fine lines there and as this trust in the government rises tendency to believe in conspiracies rise too and here you have just you know when you over when you promise you know it's only for two weeks it's only for two weeks which i guess would be that third thing you know flatten the curve rhetoric right right yeah you know or, or oh we're, we're, we're only locking down to help we're only locking down for a short-term time because it's going to have this and this effect and it doesn't uh you're feeding conspiracy theories. And then when you do it all, and then you go on to say, well, the only way to solve this is for me to have all power on heaven, all, you know, <laughs> to wax scriptural, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me, uh, <laughs> and yeah. I should have it. And, and I would I would say that was being mean to Anthony Fauci, except he literally said the words, I am science. So yeah, that there's a grandiosity to the claims being made here. And... That just feeds into the conspiratorial mindset, and it just chips away at any source of, or a sense of trust, or, or or ability for the government and the CDC to stand as a sense or as a source of trust and have a sense of trust from the public at large. And on the one hand, are you going to always have everyone's trust? No, there's always going to be a conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah sure. 
not every conspiracy theory, in fact, I would say the majority of them are not particularly worthwhile. Actually, that's what I loved about uh, Dr. Sandman. He kind of picks on certain people who got trend more towards the ridiculous in their explanations. But it's not irrational, and it's not exactly tinfoil hat when somebody says, give me power, and you go, does he have an agenda for that? Especially not when that person has their own sketchy record, historically, let alone during this pandemic. So I would say, like, that's kind of the long uh, roundabout way of answering the question. I can't pick anything as the one singular worst that eroded public trust because they've all done a really, really good job of it, and it's really, really strong. You know, one of the things that Dr. Salmon talked about in his paper is that this insistence on speaking with one voice when it comes to science or when it comes to policy. And I think, you know, when it, uh, it is important to have a unified sort of vision and idea of where you're going, where you're headed. I mean, you, that's the role of a leader, right, to, to set policy and say we need to figure out our, um, our measures to get to whatever our goal is, right? I mean, you have to, you have to set the yeah. goals. And hopefully you arrive at that through consensus in some way of, you know, if you're passing legislation, right, you have to get consensus from the Democrats and Republicans to sort of generally where your, where your goal is and then how you get there is those are the details that could kind of messy sometimes. But you would generally have a goal that's understandable and definable. And and the problem I feel like with this one voice message is that you are in some ways expected to only have one way of looking at things and there's and, and there's no other there, there's no other allowing of you know questioning there's there's one person and i guess it speaks to your ultimate authority right that this one voice is truly like one per one voice it's really kind of crazy for a country that is i mean there are 300 and what 30 million people and i think there are probably 330 million opinions of you know what we need to do there's a lot of there. There is there's such strength and weakness to speak. I mean, again, like with anything, there is there's good and a bad side to everything. And one one of the social psychological terms that has entered the common parlance, I would say, recently, and then that means it gets abused and misused. That's uh, is, is groupthink. And you know the the classic example of groupthink that actually inspired people to uh, to, to to research it back in the '60s was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, you know, whatever we think of JFK and his cabinet, he had a smart cabinet, people with experience of war. But there was such there was a desire for consensus in that cabinet. And when groupthink is actually happening, there's a desire for consensus over the truth or consensus over, you know, effectiveness. And you have what are called mind guards and people, you know, who squash down opposition. You know, the humans have a have a fundamental need to belong. We, 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 nobody like, well, no, that's not true. I was going to say nobody likes to be the outsider. Some people create their entire identity about being the outsider, which just means that they're trying to belong with another group. Um, but generally we want to belong to the group. We want to be a good person. We want to be liked. We want to be accepted. And so what you'll have is you know, people shoving down, ignoring, or even convincing themselves through cognitive dissonance, another social psych term that's in the public parlance. Uh, the, youth, the cognitive dissonance, they resolve that in favor of the group's ideas above what they actually know is a, is a good idea, what they know to be true, what they actually believe. And we've seen that this is really, really powerful, and it goes down to the level of fundamental, like even perception. Um, Self-justification of, of people holding uh, the beliefs that contradict their own uh, values or even the objective truth 
it, it's just it's a really really powerful effect one of the classic studies of this was actually uh they had people do a really really boring task like mind-numbing boring task i think it was like, like turning dials for like an hour and then they gave them a dollar and they said hey would you mind convincing somebody else to do this for us and like you know the guy who's supposed to ask somebody else to come and, and uh he's, he's not in if you would do this for us and if they paid them a dollar, that the, the, the subjects who had spent an hour turning knobs, they actually said, no, no, I really did enjoy that task. I really did enjoy that task because in their heads they're going, why else would I have done that? I only got paid a dollar. <laughs> it was interesting if you paid people $20, they, they were like, you know, I'll lie to the person, but I didn't think it was that fun. So we see this goes really – this is a really powerful effect that you people can delude themselves. And when, and, and when there's groupthink in play, you're deluding yourself and you're, and you're silencing um, other people. Because you want that consensus, and sometimes consensus is good. I don't think consensus is bad. That's that's the that's where I, I kind of I find myself very much in the middle on a lot of COVID issues, and this is one of them where I'm like, sometimes it is wise to speak with one voice, when there is actually something worth speaking with one voice on. So uh, I, I I don't see the point of us say saying that we need to entertain a diversity of perspectives on the heliocentric model of the universe sure <laughs> or or uh I, I don't think we need to you know i i, I don't think you know you know you you should be forced to uh justify yourself beyond somebody who thinks if they uh just put the right arrangement of crystals uh somebody will be just as pain-free <laughs> during a surgery as if if you do your job the, the thing is that we then like to pretend that everything goes in in that box right like you heard anthony fauci saying things like i am i am the science or i represent science i'm like it's really arrogant and that happens a lot in science that's that's happened a lot historically in science it happens in my own discipline of social psych even and it's it you know, i think the, the two biggest microcosms i can think of biggest microcosm being an interesting little term there <laughs> Um, would be like the violent media sphere and the implicit bias training sphere. And when it came, 10,000 foot view, for the longest time, so like literally over 70 years at this point, social psychologists have been convinced, of a certain class have been convinced that watching violent media makes you more violent. We can attribute all these rising violent le violence levels to violent media, even though violence is actually falling. And that became gospel. And it became gospel for probably about 50 years until a, a younger generation who, you know, grew up in the 80s and 90s playing video games was like, this is just insane. How can you how can you blame Columbine on Doom? Right. And it, it led to, a, I think, a, a, a mistrust, you know, especially those of us who are younger. And when we teach, you know, when you're younger and you're teaching kids in grad school and you're not that much older than them and you bring up, you know, yeah, yeah, these people say violent video games cause violence. You see the eye rolls because they, they just know that that's 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 not true. But. When you talk to the older people, um, older people, I'm not, that's probably a ageist term. Uh, when you talk to more established psychologists, yeah. the idea that, that that violent video games, you know, couldn't cause violence is just, it's absurd to them. And they're like, well, you know, violent video, like they're horrified by it. So obviously it would make other people more, more violent. And the other, um, and that has, despite these iffy findings this has gone to the government several times trying to basically ban violent media or regulate violent media kind of like what happened in the 80s with the uh, ria hearings and and uh song lyrics similarly um with implicit bias the idea is that implicit bias is this established thing and all social psychology all social psychologists agree with it well no that's absolutely not true like, like dan gilbert at harvard uh one of the most eminent psychologists currently working has talked at length 
and for years about how a lot of this implicit bias training stuff isn't going to work. No, just having people imagine themselves as a minority is not going to make them more empathetic. What the hell is wrong with you? But again, government policy, and this time it did win, and those were those are the implicit bias training things we're seeing lose in the public sphere. And the consequence is now that when people come up and say, hey, I have an actual good idea that could work, or you know, or they come up and say, hey, violent media doesn't make people commit mass shootings, but it does make you more aggressive. It can make you more competitive. Maybe you shouldn't expect, maybe you know, letting your nine-year-old watch Game of Thrones unrestricted <laughs> is probably not a good idea. Well, now you've eroded their trust. Uh, the implicit bias one, especially, I actually, I went to a conference where I had a, a like, I, I, I had to basically do a mea culpa in front of a couple of attorneys when they're like, social psychologists have made our lives so difficult because of implicit bias <laughs> training. I'm like, look, I promise they, I promise that's, that's, a lot of us don't believe in that. Um, and when you applied to COVID, you know, you can claim that there's all one voice all you want. Eventually, dissidence is going to break out or you're just going to kill your discipline. Those are the two things. You're either not going to have contrary voices able to speak, you're going to turn insular, and your discipline and, and your discipline's going to disappear, which I don't think is possible in something as broad as medicine. Yeah. Or eventually, you're going to eat crow. And when you eat crow, there's going to be a massive, massive um, lack, loss of face, and lack of trust. And so, I think it's wise to speak when, when with one voice when it is worth speaking with one voice and i think that when there isn't an when there isn't actually one voice you have to swallow your pride and say hey people who are smart you you, you don't have to say you agree with them to say that there are smart people who disagree with you on a subject right you don't have to say i agree with them but you can at least acknowledge they're out there and that there isn't a unified view yeah, you mentioned one thing early on in that answer. You're talking about uh, the experiment with the people turning the knobs, and you mentioned that yeah. people have given a dollar, so basically a token amount. It's basically nothing. Yeah. So they, and it, versus people who are given twenty bucks. So almost sort of like if you if there's a lot a cost, uh, or if there's a lot of value to doing it by the fact you're paid twenty dollars, that you could be more honest in your assessment of why you're spending an hour doing something, versus if you really got no payment, that you felt that there was you you had to justify in your mind why you did something that was mind-numbing and, and dumb. I feel like maybe you see that a lot in this group thinking on Twitter or social media where you see people who get really no reward for holding certain positions, yet they seem to go, to, I mean, to the mat to try and justify and to just try and be part of the in-group. In yeah, the, um, the I effing love science crowd, I refer to them. In my research design class, because that's they they <laughs> tend to have that, that that either they belong to that group or they'll retweet from that page. Uh, yeah, um, I think there's some of it. I think there is definitely some group think that there's also just group dynamics there as well. I am on the side of science. I am on the side of righteousness. Behold my value because I agree. Like, yeah, you have. I I I know I know of a couple of people, and I'll keep this as vague as I, I possibly can, who c insist on. Like like reposting and talking and they consider they're like well, I'm an activist for COVID education and I'm like you don't have a degree in medicine you don't have a degree in in, in science you're not like there I know people who also just do this and like they're trying to keep their local community informed that's a very that's totally different totally different sure. you know, yeah, yeah, phenomenon yeah. but you know as opposed to saying hey these are the COVID numbers get vaccinated that's one thing but there are people actively representing themselves as if they're like able to talk on the subject or speak on the subject and i'm like i could not possibly care less about your opinion if i tried i want to hear from <laughs> a doctor or 
Well, no, because if, if they're a data scientist, they're have, I want to hear from my kind of doctor instead of your kind of doctor. Yeah, yeah sure. You know, either, either way, PhD or MD or DO needs to be involved in this discussion. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't care about you, you're, you, you, know, you're, you as a concerned citizen, but they think that because they're on the right side, uh, that, they're entitled, that they somehow have the right opinion and the righteous opinion. And, and that, that, I mean, uh, typical group dynamics, once you're, att once you're attacking an, in an out group to bolster your in group, we, we know that people will go to extreme lengths uh, to, to, to make sure that that happens as good as they can. Well, and you know, you, when you were talking about speaking with one voice, clearly if you have something to your point, if it's something that is, there's a preponderance of evidence, there every, you know, every reason to believe that gravity exists, there's no reason to, to, you should speak with one voice. If you jump off a cliff, you're going, you know, bad things are going to happen, right? If you don't have a parachute, et cetera, right? Yeah. But when you have a lot of uncertainty, which we do in this situation and lots of certain situations in science, um, that you have to be more careful because if you're found to be wrong, you've now, like you said, eat crow. We have lots of people who are who've clearly been shown to be wrong, who've been making decisions of, with policy, with whether it's Fauci with his in, initial you know, discussion on you know masks are good, masks are bad, you should wear two masks, you should wear them outside. Or what are you talking about? We should never wear it outside, right? We have people who are who seem to lack I don't know reflection that they were wrong at times and not and they never own it. So how how important is it to own it? And can you own it? Uh, like someone like Fauci, is he just so far gone that even if you try to own things now, he's there's just no coming back, or how do how do they sort of recover from this and hopefully, you know, maintain their, um, I guess, their authority within the public health sphere? I mean, I, I don't know if I'm qualified to say if Fauci himself can come back from this. Um, speaking for myself, I would never trust him again. I watched the—I'm not the biggest fan of Rand Paul, but uh, watching him spar with Fauci when Fauci's trying to say, well, I never did gain-of-function research, and then I'm like, it's literally in the paper. <laughs> like, if one of my students tried to do this, it's, it's like watching my students try to justify that, that when, they've, when, when I've caught them plagiarizing, I'm like, no, you, you need to cite a reference. Well, no, I don't, because I used a different term, and I'm like, that's still plagiarism. That's how I felt with that. So I'm not sure Fauci can ever gain back his trust. I do think that you know there has been an enormous loss of trust, and I think in the short term getting it back will be difficult, but I think it can be gotten back. Uh, the thing is, is that... Um, First of all, you're going to have to admit that you don't know things, and that's scary for everyone because uh, as many people as have lost trust in the government, there are some people who this is all they have. All they have is trust in, in the official reports, and I, I, that sounds very conspiratorial, but I mean I think all of us kind of uh, fall prey to that in some way, in some arena or another oh, sure. about something. I mean, like I'm, again, I'm not a medical doctor. I know nothing about – vaccines, but I trust enough people to say that I think when they tell me a vaccine works, even outside of COVID, right? Like my baby, my, I have a one month old daughter. She is getting her vaccines based on the schedule that her pediatrician says, because sure. I'm not going to bat, I'm not going to battle a pediatrician. Uh, you know, we, we all surrender ourselves to an authority in, in some way, shape or form. And there's so much uncertainty with COVID that, you know, it would be scary for a lot of people if the government said, we don't know, but I think Ultimately, that becomes less of a psychological question than it does a moral one. And this is something I actually do kind of disagree with Dr. Sandman on. Um, he says, you know, it's, 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 wouldn't it be better to just admit uncertainty? I agree with him morally. Like, yeah, morally, if you're not certain, you need to say you're not certain. And I, I believe that as a good scientist, you should do that. I mean, we're science is sci sci there is no science without statistics. That's just that's the world we live in. We're in. We live in an age of empiricism. 
Um, that debate has been that debate was settled a long time ago. <laughs> uh, and statistics is inherently uncertain. It's all inherent whether you're doing classical or Bayesian. It's all inherently about probabilities. Sure. Yeah. But most like, having taught intro to stats now for like, that's the class I've taught the most throughout grad school and now in uh, as as a professor. That is something that even potential scientists struggle with. Like when you tell your class, like, hey, and we don't know anything and we've proved nothing, we, we test null hypotheses, it's very unsatisfying. Humans do not like uncertainty. We don't like acknowledging that we could be wrong or that we don't know something. And, I mean, and even within science, I mean, if you, anyone who's ever applied for a grant, know, they, you, you, know, you know better than to say, well, it would be nice if we found this. You say, no, we're going to find it. Give us $50,000. Um, so I think it would be morally better to admit uncertainty, and I think that would gain some of the trust that has been lost with people who, you know, shall we say are more skeptical. It could also then lose other people's trust. I don't know. I don't know what would happen. I can't predict the future because I will admit my own uncertainty. Um, and this is such an unprecedented thing in a lot of ways because this has happened in an era of mass communication as opposed to – I mean, yeah, the government's done some shady stuff before, but the Tuskegee experiments did, were not, did not have entire Reddit threads and 4chan <laughs> things right, yeah. dedicated to them. You know, looking at some of the psychological and – behavioral economic research uh, that's been done about re restoring government trust. Ironically, actually, a lot of it deals with, again, criminal justice, and some of it actually also deals with finances. Uh, the, the recent attempts by the nation of Greece to try to, you know, basically tax its citizens, all of whom have basically gone, what right do you have to tax us? You don't know what you're doing with money. Well, so the interesting findings in both cases is you can't just make a process, you can't just punish people. And you can't just say, well, we'll just make taxes more effective or we'll just we'll try to create a system that does what we want, which seems to be the thing that even now in COVID discussions, we need a system to get people vaccinated. I'm like, well, we have a ton of vaccines and they're going to waste. You, what you need to do is actually have some accountability and also um, maybe not admit you were – well, no, you have to admit you were wrong because you were wrong, like mask, the whole mask thing like, like you mentioned. Yeah, right. But also I think try, the way you, we approach this and we try to, we try to persuade people – um, there's something, there's what's called one-sided and two-sided persuasion. And one-sided persuasion is me saying, I'm right, I know I'm right, totally right. And sometimes when done from an expert in a certain sphere, this is effective. Like when there isn't a ton of debate about, I don't think, well, generally, I don't think if I were going to talk about, say, the Milgram experiment to a bunch of non-psychologists and I say, this is my interpretation of it, I think they'll take that for, they'll take that as its word. In fact, I if would, I were to say that. Yeah. Oh, well, not necessarily that relevant to this, but we, we can talk about it later. Uh, but if I, if I go, okay, well, I think this, but other people think this, I might undermine myself. But that's in a, you know, that's, you know, if I were going to talk, talk about the Milgram experiment to a bunch of people who've never heard of it before, and that, that's my, my job is to communicate that as the expert. You know, teachers do one-sided attempts at persuasion. Okay. But when there is debate, there's what's called two-sided persuasion. And that's where you acknowledge that other points exist and you still hold to what you believe you still say thing you know okay like this is what i believe there are alternatives i think they're wrong and here's why but you recognize them and what's important is you have to do it respective respectfully you make appeals to both sides um 
you know, you know, you include you include conflicting information. The, the the phrase that I'm reading here from a quote from a paper is: you must include conflicting information in a concessive way. You acknowledge other people's concerns. This was actually something that I I did some research on this. Uh, unfortunately, it never got beyond a pilot study because uh, March 2020 happened. <laughs> um, but we were looking at vaccines in a non-global pandemic way, and what's been what's interesting is that people. Our research showed something like this. There's other research out there that shows it more strongly. Even with vaccine-hesitant people before COVID, if you said, hey, I understand you. Like, for example, the big one is vaccines cause autism. And anyway, they don't cause autism. That's all lies. Go, hey, like, there's a claim that people say it's cause autism and that the rates have risen. But do you know that the rates have risen because children aren't dropping like flies? And because of these vaccines, they live a lot longer, and we, we are better at, at identifying autism. That's why the, the rates have risen. It's not that the vaccines cause autism. People are more receptive to that. I don't think I've ever heard the government use two-sided persuasion about anything, ever. Uh, certainly nothing involving health communication, to my knowledge. Right. I mean, you, you, you'd know better than I would, um, but I have certainly not seen it. I mean, I, <clears throat> I guess... Uh... This sort of reminds me a little bit. I talked to Dr. Sherlow. She's a um, she did some research on colonialism and mistrust in medicine from Central Africa. I think she mainly spent most of her time in Congo, and she would talk about how they were. I think it was the French, the colonial forces at that time, were were basically forcing medical treatments on people on villagers, and they were you know vaccinations for I think it was sleeping sickness, and but a lot of their treatments, of course, were they would kill people. <laughs> There's no question they did. Maybe they save lives in general, but they were just kind of experimenting on people against their will. And the general level of distrust 50 years later towards just medical advice was still present. If you compared, you know, where, where villages where people were forced to submit to these medical experiments versus villages that weren't, uh, you know, three generations later, people were still very distrustful of modern medicine, of just, you know, the of basic sort of medications and and healthcare strategies and it's something that really concerns me because i'm i look at this and i think you know there are a lot of things that medicine does it's really good at but i feel like um we're kind of throwing everything away for no gain at this point and uh and i'm i'm very worried that we're going to have significant vaccine hesitancy on all sorts of things that you know we've been well established up to this point and i don't know that how you get that back and i because I do think that, to your point earlier, I think there's there's not been a there's not been much um, empathy towards people who are disagreeing, and and I see this with all my colleagues on online and social. Now these are just people who are yelling on social media, you know, and Facebook and Twitter, and they're people generally prominent people, deans of medical schools or whatever, and yelling at people. And I say yelling because I think that's actually accurate. That they were actually truly yelling at people and essentially calling them terrible people for not getting vaccinated for not wearing masks for not socialized isolating for whatever i mean they're whatever the sort of the the company line is they were being chewed out for lack of a better term right which is never a very good persuasive technique in my opinion right i mean what is, is the not. best persuasion technique i mean i'm sure the psychologists have figured this out and I'm, I'm guessing yelling at people outside of maybe a coach at the last you know maybe making a point uh, on the football field, maybe then yelling at someone is effective. Even then, even then, like, uh, you get a lot of anger when you tell people that, when you tell, especially from an older generation, like, well, I was yelled at and I turned out just fine. It's like, yeah, but if you don't <laughs> yell at people, yeah, people, you know, discussion works better. Empathy works better. Empathy is like, 
again, even, even legitimacy, going all the way back to legitimacy, people want to feel acknowledged. They want to feel respected. And again, like there are some reasons for vaccine hesitancy that I don't think deserve the time of day. Sure. I'm, I'm just going to be honest. Uh, like, like it, it's really interesting to me that actually the, the biggest before all this, the, some of the biggest constituencies of uh, vaccine hesitancy came from the left. Oh, yeah. No question. Yeah. Absolutely. It was a thing. And I, even before COVID, I would bring this up and people look at me like, well, no, because the left is pro-science. And I'm like, have you ever met a hippie? Like, go to California. <laughs> like, I meet them all the time. Like, you know, oh, man, I'm super left wing, like crystals. And I'm like, I'm going to stop you right there. Uh, like, like you, you have people saying like they don't like vaccines because, you know, it's artificial and it's dirty. And I'm like, OK, that's one thing. But there's been such an us versus them reductionism in, in the discourse around this. I mean, you see even the definition of anti-vaxxer. Like when it's like even people who oppose vaccine mandates, it's like, okay, that's a, this is, this is, you are creating two, an artificial dichotomy that we already knew didn't work when we, when it came to non-COVID vaccines, because there were some people who had different concerns. There were different, there, that's why the scales and the measures were trying to differentiate what concerns do you have, because alleviating different concerns, you're probably never going to convince Gwyneth Paltrow to, to, to become a pro-vaccine advocate. But you might be able to convince somebody who's like, well, don't they cause autism? It's like, well, no, you can show them the, the facts. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right that we are we are currently in a, in a situation where like there's going to be long-term effects to this. It, it, it makes me really upset. Uh, and I do think that those people yelling at social media, and I think you're right that they are yelling. And I think it matters because when people see that, like, oh, well, I was hesitant. I'm a little hesitant about vaccines, but I guess I am a bad person. Well, screw it. I don't. I better. I don't need to change. This is the sort of person I am. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. There's all this stereotyping and 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 prejudice that goes on just based on group membership, which is the psychological definition of prejudice: treating people differently based on group membership. You've created the group anti-vaxxer. You've thrown them in it. Now you're treating them like dirt. Where well, they're never going to change their minds. And where the, you know we live in a nation where the, our rule of law makes it so that you're never you're not going to be able to go out there and forcibly vaccinate these people. I've seen people talk about that and they think it's a great idea, and I'm like, okay, we don't have much to discuss. That thank God you're a fringe, uh, but that that's making this worse. We need to have that two-sided persuasion, and that just admit that that just takes humility. And I mean, there. <laughs> Find me. There was one. There was one person who was relatively humble in politics, and uh, his party. He left his party, and now is <laughs> now isn't in, in the House of Representatives anymore, and just lives in Grand Rapids. So yeah, other than that, I don't know of particularly humility being uh, a thing in politics. It's all about scoring points. And I will say this: this this is another one of those things. I'm like this applies to both sides. Uh, I won't name the politician. But it's, it's a popular one on social media. I follow plenty of people on social media I disagree with. And he, they were talking about the, the White House's press release today basically said something you know, along the lines of, hey, we're not going to shut down the economy if you, you know, and, and we aren't going to take people who've been vaccinated. You've been doing all you can. People who haven't been vaccinated, you're in for trouble. More than and trouble, I, yeah. Yeah, and, and now they went on to talk about legal ramifications and things that I don't think are a good idea. And are just going to provoke reactants. But in this, what this politician said about it, and in the comments on this post, people are going, "Yeah, you know, they think they're better than you." They, and I'm, and in the back of my head, I'm going, "Yeah, I have a little daughter who, if you are, I mean, I've had this conversation with family and friends. I'm like, yeah, you aren't vaccinated, you are not, and you get within ten feet of her, uh, we're going to have a problem. Don't put your germs on my kid, and not just COVID, like anything. I, you have to have your shots. I have a kid." 
and like, well, you're just taking a political angle. And I'm like, no, it's not. Like the other side does this too. And that they're, they're, they're not, they're not willing to understand that there are genuine concerns from people. You know, COVID is scary. Uh, COVID, COVID is terrifying or the uncertainty around it is terrifying. And and, and then the fact that this is, you know, we're, we're pushing two years here. Yeah. That's scary. And I think that people, I think putting this in the right and left isn't really helpful. But people on the the, the anti-vax and anti-COVID legislation side, they also need to understand that there are reasons people are scared and that they're upset. And that just rallying and saying, well, they're all authoritarian scum and they, I know they, you know, oh, they're wearing a mask because they're afraid and they want, they want, they want, they want you to have a vaccine before you go into their business. That's because they're a bad person. I'm like, well, no, this, this goes both ways here. Try to have some freaking empathy. Yeah. Well, I, my wife's a pediatrician, and and her clinic visits are oftentimes reduced to two, two discussions. One is convincing people that their child will not die from COVID because they're young, healthy, they're you know they maybe vaccinated, they're but that the the threat is not it's not like Ebola, it's not the Black Plague that's coming on, and yet these people are terrified, living in fear, anxiety, and they're a mess. And then she has the other conversation. It, it's only these two conversations, pretty much. The other conversation <laughs> is, yeah, COVID's either not real, vaccines are totally ineffective, uh, people are just being crazy about this thing, and I'm, you know, I've got a good immune system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? There, or I'm going to avoid getting it. I'm going to, you know, I'm careful or something like. <clears throat> there's no like, mi- there's no middle ground in the in this sort of discussion, and f- from your background in political f- psychology, I I'm curious because I always associated before COVID and. I would even say probably before 2015, I, my, I thought my understanding of the world was valid. I, I've, I've questioned all of it now since then, at least as far as I, as far as how I group people, you know, left and right. I think I always felt like people on the left, generally speaking, were not anti-authoritarian, but more suspicious and more, um, well, less trusting of authority in general, right? That was at least growing up when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s that people who which is why you'd have naturally you'd expect people to be less trusting of the government of pharmaceuticals and f- vaccines and so it was natural that you'd find anti-vaccination vaccination positions on people from people on the left and generally people on the right i always felt they were pro-authority pro-law and order you know that they were more comfortable with that and so it i feel like the world has flipped upside down in the last two years a- am i totally wrong or is it am i just or do both sides I mean, have authoritarian principles? It just kind of depends on I who mean, you're looking at. I don't really like the left-right dichotomy myself, frankly. I have a, a very close friend and a collaborator who she calls herself an outright socialist. <laughs> and anyone who, I, I would call myself a classical liberal, though for the sake of the argument, for the sake of like just communication now, I just tell people, yeah, I'm a centrist. Uh, and she and I agree on like 75% of things. So <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I would I, I think one of the problems with the left-right dichotomy, and, and this really applies to vaccines, I really like moral foundations theory from Jonathan Haidt, who is apparently now right-wing. People were like, I mentioned Jonathan Haidt the other day, and somebody, he's, oh, he's, he's basically just a fascist. And I'm like, I've met Jonathan Haidt. He wouldn't remember me. I'm, it's not, I'm not going to like try to toot my head. Oh, I'm friends with Jonathan Haidt. I'm like, no, I once had a beer at the same table at SBSB with him once. But he is not. If, if he is right wing, I, I don't think even Stalin. Well, no, maybe Stalin would call him right wing. But unless you are like an actual tanky, the USSR wasn't that bad idiot, which not to be unempathetic, but if you you know genuinely are that far left, 
uh, there's no way that Jonathan Haidt counts as right wing. But what he what he talks about a lot and why he shifted to the center when he was pretty left wing was that people have all these different moral concerns. And more, different moral concerns underline what we typically think of as the right and left. And, and different moral concerns can lead you to the same conclusion, but for different reasons. So with the issue of vaccines, um, we know that people become more anti-vax, what we'll say, quote-unquote, the left, because of purity concerns. They're concerned about contaminating themselves. They're concerned about, you know, oh, uh, that's, that's yucky. But we know people on the right will be concerned about it, you know, because of morals. Like, you know, the, the idea of, of, you know, oh, well, whether it be the, the abortion argument or just plain old, you know, liberty, you know, people, the government's telling me to do something, I shouldn't have to do it. Uh, beyond the moral foundations, I think there's also just a who, who's in charge. You know, the left was all very anti-authoritarian. Uh, you, know, you mentioned growing up in the 80s and 90s. I remember growing up in the noughties and, you know, early 2010s and, and being in high school and college. And... Yeah, Barack Obama became president, but he became a lame duck pretty quickly, and there was still a lot of blame being thrown at Bush. The idea was that the authorities were right-wing. But now that Joe Biden has taken over and he had a supposed mandate, uh, a word that has now gotten so much more meaning, uh, <laughs> yeah. who's the authority now? Like, well, it's different when we are in charge. We wouldn't be authoritarian. We would only do this to you for your own good. That's that cognitive dissonance I was talking about. You always go, we are the good guys. So when we're doing this, does it mean we're the bad guys? Or does it mean that there's a good reason to do this? Like, I, I, like again, with, with the vaccine policies, you know, people would, uh, people would totally, <laughs> David French wrote an article a couple of weeks ago where he said, if you told people like 10 years ago on the right that they would say they would never, uh, they would never take a vaccine. They'd be an anti-vaccine movement with them that would take the right wing by storm, even though it could potentially save lives. They'd have laughed at you. But the difference is that now it's them who's who's talking about vaccines and we're pushing, quote unquote, the vaccine. And they are bad. So if they have done it, it is good. Ergo, I'm going to be anti-vaccine. So I think there's just kind of the natural cycle of uh, of authority and, 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 and who's in charge there that's pushing people to that perspective. The problem with that, from my from my point of view, is that science shouldn't be left or right. Science should, or if you want to go horseshoe theory, whatever you want to say, science should be ideologically as neutral as possible. Um, we, we, you know, obviously we're going to have our own views, but we shouldn't just uh, we shouldn't take a stance on certain things. And the World Health Organization does this all the time, where it feels entitled to make proclamations that really have nothing to do with health. And it seems like Dr. Fauci is kind of taking that perspective, too, where it's like if it even slightly tentatively connects to health, I can talk about it. And we're seeing that across, you know, guns are becoming a, are, are a health issue. I'm like, how are they a, a, a health issue? All right, uh, how, how, is, how is the ability to regulate travel really going? Is, is that really going to have an effect on public health versus all the other outcomes? I don't. I don't think it is. But that's a political decision. And yet, because science is supposed to be neutral, people can claim that they're being neutral. And I think that's what's kind of happening here. That was a very roundabout way to answer that question. Yeah. No. I, but I. I. I follow that. And I think when it comes to authority, especially, I would say the last six to seven years or so. I'm not sure exactly what the right timeline is, but you definitely feel like the authority, even when Trump was president that he didn't carry a lot of authority within people who are decision makers 
uh, either within the government. Uh, he felt like he had a loose, <laughs> a loose hold on the reins, I, I guess you'd say, and ability to persuade within the, the government institutions, the machinations that are going on in the, the government, certainly within culture and media. I mean, there's there are very few outlets, I felt like, that were sympathetic to his view. I mean, and and they tend to speak in unanimity when it comes to a lot of things with COVID I, or, you know, the government line, whatever that might be. And I think, you know, that's to one of the points that Dr. Simon wrote as well, where he was talking about the one of the big problems, too, right now that he sees is that there is really a, there's not a, a diversity of opinions, of, of views or of people with of politics within decision makers. Right. You have people who all seem to be coming from the same. They're all liberal, let's say, or all the, on the left. And there aren't people who are the Jay Bhattacharya's, the John Ioannidis's, the guys who are contrarians, I guess. They're not in, at all involved in the decision making or the the. Um, the discussion at all. They're largely either, I mean, now I guess we've been exposed that they've been sort of actively discredited by <laughs> by Dr. Fauci and his and the, the NIH, NIH director, uh, Dr. Collins. Uh, but they were at least, you know, if at best ignored. Uh, and so that that has caused a further division, I guess, with and forcing people in the camps and politicizing something that probably shouldn't have been politicized. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that uh, something else Sam and said, and this is just, this is again, I, I literally, I've had, I've had my students do this for stats all the time. Um, scientific thinking is not easy. Statistical thinking is definitely not easy. Uh, even people who, certain people who might use the frame, the phrase, you know, I use facts, logic, and statistics. I'm like, you use none of those <laughs> very often. And yet people, like, they throw a statistic up and they think they're, they just, the media sucks at it. Like, like <laughs> across the board, right or left wing, it doesn't matter. And, and Dr. Sandman mentions this, right? Like, they are not health communicators. And nor should they be. That's not their job. I know plenty right. of journalists who are, I know several journalists personally who are decent people, good people. They're not trained to know how to communicate research because that's just not, that's not their purview. But now we've kind of had science. Science has become politicized, and it's, it's become a way to, to to demonstrate your value. I'm on the right side of this, and yeah, I, I think that we, we if, it, maybe we should have like a, maybe we should have like scientists actually. I don't know how this, I don't know what this would look like. This is totally big, large, construal level thinking, high construal level thinking. But maybe scientists should actually try to communicate this themselves and learn to talk like normal people. And I'm not volunteering myself for that because I stink at it. But we need people with more scientific education presenting these things and being able to do it in such a way that garners expertise. And here's the other thing that's really important. I, I meant to say this earlier, but I think it's really, I really would not forgive myself if I didn't get this out. And it's really relevant. Not only are two-sided arguments more persuasive, they make people trust you more and i think so like if, if you actually want people to if you, if you want to effectively communicate about um coven you want to bring the people in who are doubting having one of the, any of the five light late night hosts all, one of whom has a british accent other than that they're all totally identical <laughs> to deliver some high and mighty monologue that isn't funny about and that is flippant about how oh don't we hate all those people it's like cool uh you're not convincing anyone. And again, I'm fully vaxxed and don't really have much time for the anti-vaccine rhetoric, but I do believe in convincing people and I hate flippancy. And instead of, you know, why don't we have somebody come out and say something like, hey, vaccines are good and you should get vaccinated, but you also don't need to lose your head about COVID. Here's what we know and here's what we don't know. 
having someone like be able to write like Dr. Sandman and have this 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 paper and the, these these things given out to the public, and have that be what we're focusing on instead of the debate basically being still you know whether right or left quote unquote. Why do those people? Why do the bad guys' on, views on COVID not matter? And why should you ignore them and listen to me? That is basically every talk show's take on COVID. It just depends on who they thinks the bad guy and what they're sure. talking about. Yeah. And that's 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 the closest thing I can think of to a solution. But there's been so much damage done to the scientific community, which was already you know I still trust in science, but part of that what that means that doesn't mean that I worship it. Uh, I acknowledge science's limits. And I think that I trust some, when when somebody tells me that they have something perfect, you know, they have this this clear. There's no there's there's no question about this. I'm like, this better be gravity, or <laughs> or, or or I don't trust you. And while not all doubt in science is valid, and I do think science can regain that doubt um, and, and regain its ground and assuage those doubts, uh, we've lost a lot of ground. And I think that if we the, the the longer we take to actually acknowledge we need to make two-sided appeals and, and try to bring people back and show some empathy and, and acknowledge what, what the limits of our knowledge are, uh, the more ground we lose. Uh, do, you th- do you, I mean, when you're looking at things right now, I, I, I like to try and come up with solutions. It doesn't sometimes, you know, it's all speculation at this point, what you'd have to do to actually regain the public's trust. I feel like when it comes to the United States at this point, I think Anthony Fauci, there's no way you're going to ever have him um, serve in a role where that people are going to trust him that are opposed to his viewpoints at this point. There's there's nothing he can say. There's nothing he can do that are, that is going to regain anyone's trust in the institutions that he leads, you know, the FDA or the CDC or NIH, right? I feel like the only way you can fix the problem is to really I have him retire, fire him, whatever, and replace him. And have to have a real dialogue with people who are, who are the contrarian voices. I don't see that happening, but I, th- I feel like that's really the only way we're going to ever find any sort of reasonable consensus within the country as far as you know, our path forward. Do you think that's accurate, or do you think there's really something that Fauci could say or do, or there's some sort of thing that, that would actually bring us back? And I, and I hate picking on Anthony Fauci. Well, I don't totally hate it. I mean, because he, because he has been in charge, and he's been in charge a long time. Which, to the point, also, which is related but not really, un- but it's a little unrelated. It is important to recognize these are political appointees, and I think people forget this. They think, oh, he's a scientist, he's really smart, and yes, he's those things. There's no question about that. But he is also a political animal. He's been in the same position for 40 years. You don't, you don't survive in a position like that by being a bumpkin and not knowing how to work the political angles, work the media, and um, have your allies within legislatures to protect you. And so it's totally ex- understandable that he is very adept at tearing people down and maintaining his position of prominence because unless you're doing something truly crooked like you know embezzling you can last a long time in politics uh, just by being a good political animal and i think that's what he's been but it doesn't help him in in sort of regaining sort the of ma- his prominence the man has his own disney plus special well, I, actually i think it's technically <laughs> national Geographic. it's on disney plus when i log in to watch you know to, to, to watch my marvel or star wars shows i see it recommended it's there yeah, he's a political animal, uh, and 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 he's definitely swayed. He's definitely lobbied his celebrity, and I think you're probably right. That is just my opinion. I can't. I can't yeah, well, I, I, it, it's just it's just like my opinion, man. I don't think there's anything Fauci can do. I think, however, the problem with fixing it is that you need you would need there to be truly bipartisan efforts to appoint maybe a council, maybe a committee of people to, to head it up. 
good luck. Um, you know, as, as you know, uh, I, I broke my rule and looked at like social media this morning about, about, uh, Biden's plans for buyback better, build back better. And just seeing the response from some of my leftist friends about Tim Manchin calling him a traitor and saying, well, you know, he disagreed with us. West Virginia shouldn't even count. His vote shouldn't count. And I'm like, okay, we, we don't even have the public. You all, you all need to take a civics lesson. The same, the same thing I was the same, the same thing I would say to people who said, "Oh, but Biden isn't the legitimate president." You all need to take a civics lesson, you know, and a lot of other things. Uh, you know, you know, you know we, we, that's the populace, and the, the, with a representative government, they, the the media and the representatives absolutely know that, and I think that they know that there will be punishment if they talk to each other. Uh, they get off off of scoring political points on the opposition. I don't think. I think very few people are immune to that. Um, actually, maybe the only one I could think of is the guy who replaced is a uh, Meyer. Yeah, <laughs> put him in charge of it. Maybe he could. Maybe he could do this. But I think if they could all put on their big boy pan, big girl pants, and sit down and have a good discussion, and maybe set up a tribunal. And I'm not saying everyone you know, again. Like there are certain things, and maybe I'm speaking outside my lane. So if I'm, if you think I'm wrong, feel free to call me out. But I, I, nothing I have read suggests that ivermectin was going to was going to work the way people were talking about it. Certainly not the point that you know it became a lot more annoying to buy my dog's heartworm medicine. Yeah. Uh, and similarly with you know hydroxychloroquine, um, I know there's mixed evidence, but certainly it wasn't the cure all people were talking about. Uh, I'm not saying we have to let those people on the committee, but letting a plethora of people across the board be on the committee talk about these issues seems like it would be it would regain some public trust, and I think that's really important. And I don't see it happening, but if it did happen, I think it could be effective. Yeah, but and maybe, that's super high construal level, and I'm not I'm not in politics for a reason. So well, and I think I feel like it, if there are probably plenty of people who don't care. Which is, you know, they're, I'm sure there's no shortage of people who don't really care. They'll just kind of cram their viewpoint down or they'll just say, we're just never going to agree and so we're not going to try. Uh, but I feel like there are, that at some point it's someone's going to try and, and do this. I mean, that was sort of the, that was one of the selling points of Biden, right? Was that we're going to have a, we're going to grow up. We're not going to have all this petty bickering and this sort of thing. And it's been. That happened. I mean, it's, I, I can't see any, any difference from, from what it was before nope. except except there's maybe more buy-in from the public with what, or the, uh, not the public, but the press with what Biden's doing. But I, I'm i not surprised. I'm saddened that it that it didn't really improve at all. But um, I guess we kind of almost have to leave it at that because we, there's clearly no way we're going to solve these problems except to say that that I think from a psychological standpoint, there are definitely some real problems with the way that communication's occurring and that they're, the group think is a problem, cognitive dissonance, and I, you know, I guess that'd be the one last question I have for you because everyone talks about cognitive dis dissonance, which is basically that you're, st what is it, sort of like seeing alternative reality, or and despite all the facts presented to you, if it goes against what your sort of your concrete beliefs are, or whatever, that you will deny them or alter them in order to fit in your sort of your structure, how you see the world. But how, I mean, right now there's, I f I believe, and I. I've just as I watch things, I feel like I'm just sort of in the middle. But you know, people obviously feel differently. I'm sure my listeners, but um, I feel like Omicron, when it's coming, it is seems much more benign. It seems like we're moving towards a more um, a little less lethal uh, virus. Certainly, one that's probably more infectious. I, I don't think there's much question about that. 
but if that's the case, uh, I think, you know, we people at some point are going to have to accept the fact that this thing has gotten over and that they're no longer going to be at risk for dying all the time. And I think, how do people change that? I mean, how do you, how do you, if you have all the facts, and let's say we know a month from now that, yes, the rate of death is one-tenth or less uh, from Omicron, that the Delta wave, uh, yes, it's more infectious, you're going to get sick, but it's going to be kind of like a cold, a really bad cold, which we all have had bad colds. How do you convince people? I mean, do you have to have like a, the guy at the top, Fauci, tell them that, and then they're going to say, okay, is it like a tribal thing? How do we fix that problem? I mean, for, as for the questions you asked before, how do we fix the problem? The answer, I think, is yes. It's tribal. Some people would be convinced if it came top down. Some people would be convinced that they're doctors. There'd be so many things we'd have to try. Um, I'm not sure it's a cognitive dissonance thing. Cognitive dissonance is actually more about your own behaviors, and you see yourself acting against your own beliefs, and you're like, okay, you either change your beliefs or explain away your behavior. Okay. So while it does apply in this debate, I'm not sure it's necessarily what's at work with Omicron. Um, I think what you're seeing with the Omicron variant and the attitudes towards it, rather, are just the addictive nature of panic. And this has been true about things, you know, like, again, whatever your cause, outrage is, outrage is powerful, but it's very, it's a very hot emotion, and, and emotions are exhausting. And it's a very Gen Z thing to say, uh, but emotions <laughs> are, I'm not even Gen Z, but emotions are exhausting. And you have to keep the fires of outrage stoked. And that's been the, the thing with COVID. And I'm, again, I'm not saying it's not been a big deal, because it's been a very big deal. I've lost friends and family to COVID. Uh, I, I, in fact, I, I, I genuinely get angry when I hear people say it's not, it's not a real disease. And I'm like, how many um, people yeah. died? Right. Yeah. Um, like you're throwing away lives. But on the other hand, you know, like, like pe people are going to, people are going to get burned out. So if you want people, there seems to be this idea that if, if everything isn't the worst thing, it's, it's kind of like with the, the analogy I use is, it's kind of like how I find a lot of action movies boring because uh, there's there's you know James Bond movies J back in the '80s and you know James Bond a James Bond villain could just want to bunch of people to live underwater and that was fine. <laughs> now it has to be every single villain ever and every movie whether it's Bond or Marvel or whatever they have to be destroying the world. There's no there there are no villains who just have small plans anymore. The, the, the 90s mummy movies were just, a, you know, at least the first one was just, he's just a guy who wants to get his powers and get his girlfriend back. Now that the one with Tom Cruise, they're going to, what are they going to do? Oh, they're going to destroy the world, right? That's the, all we have anymore. Same in politics. Everything's world ending. Everything's catastrophic. If you don't act now, people will die. And, and it's on both sides. Uh, sure. So, for example, like, you, just to make sure I'm picking on the right, um, people are now getting outraged. Oh, like there's a rise in suicides among teenage girls because of social media. And I'm like, it's a negligible rise and an already low rate. I'm not saying it's not a problem, but you are talking about banning Instagram via government mandate. You don't see the problem with this? Same thing. You know, COVID is serious. The Omicron, let's say this a month from now, the Omicron variant is serious. Um, but if it is a lesser rate of death, that should be a good thing. Actually, this this might be this might be where cognitive dissonance comes in. I may have talked myself into this. <laughs> At this point, we are so used to no COVID bad, COVID disaster, COVID world ending. Yeah. Oh, it looks like Omicron may just be the virus, kind of fizzling out and becoming like other coronaviruses in the past. But that doesn't go with what I've been doing about everything about COVID is always the worst worst mummy movie ending the world level threat thing. No, Omicron must be worth it. Omicron is terrible and we need to shut down everything because, you know, there's a tension there and there's a motivated tension there because, you know, in terms of the 24-hour news cycle, it sells. 
in terms of group dynamics. It's a way to prove you're one of the good guys and one of the bad guys by being pro or anti-vax. Uh, in terms of our society, it's a way to it's a way to say, see, those people are bad versus our people who are good. There's so much motivation behind what cognition you could hold on this issue that it's uh, it might genuinely just be, well, either we give all this up or we just say that Omicron's a disaster, and that's why I think you. I mean, what, what, you, was, you saw this before with every other variant, right? Like, oh, there's a new variant coming, and I'm like, we don't even know yet. Yeah, right. It's but it's already a disaster. I think the way out of this isn't because you, you you mentioned you know that we'd have to leave it there. I think there is one important thing to say about it, and that is you know we can't control the government. I, I know in theory we're supposed to be able to via by by voting. Um, that's a lovely thought. Uh, <laughs> I think what's more important though is how we talk to other people, and I'm not saying you know over this Christmas give your un you know this Christmas give your unvaccinated aunt a hug. No, but I think that when people bring up doubts. I've even seen this in my own family. Um, you know, people bring up doubts, and the immediate thing is, you're such an beeping idiot. You know, like, why don't you, you know, uh, the demonize, or even demonizing them not knowing people in the group may have doubts. Having that, that empathy, and, 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 and if, if you're convinced about something, that's great. If you're convinced about pro vaccines, good, so am I. But think about why people are worried and try to talk about it, because we all know we're going to talk about this over Christmas, right? Or maybe other people will not, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, when that happens, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm barely engaged with Christmas anyway. I have to talk about <laughs> something. Uh, when that happens, try to show that empathy. I think that's how we could affect real change. And I think it does. It, it's, it's all very feel good and Disney Channel and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, I think it really has to be. If it comes from us and it comes from an individual, you know, hey, this is this is what I think, and people really see each other, stop seeing each other as threats, then we might see some change. Certainly, I think it's more effective than trying to think about how we can convince the Republicans and Democrats to get along. Yeah. Well, um, I guess we'll leave it at that. It does feel a little bit like a Hallmark movie. We just need some love, and we need to care for each other. And, but you know what? In some ways, that. Imagine there's no true. COVID. <laughs> well, I, I hope at some point the Biden administration, I mean, you could, there are two ways to look at Omicron. One is you can say, you know, Armageddon, close everything down, the end of the, you know, be running in the streets, panicking, buying up all the toilet paper. Or you can look at and say, hey, this might be RW, right? I mean, for an administration that's been struggling, it would be, not, they could claim the win, right? We survived to the point where now it's getting better. And, but uh, I think it, We'll see. Hopefully they go with that. Uh, Dr. Pomerantz, Dr. Aaron Pomerantz from St. <laughs> Thomas University uh, in Houston, Texas. Thanks so much for being on The Paradox. If people want to follow more stuff from you, where's a good place for them to, to check you out on social media, et cetera? Um, I'm actually kind of between uh, social media things. I'm, I'm, think, I'm thinking of getting a Twitter because apparently we're supposed to have Twitters as academics. Um, I can get you back, get you that if you want to. I occasionally write for the Foundation for Economic Education. I don't really have much of a social media presence at the moment. Uh, my, my, I, my, my defense is that I just had a daughter and it's been nine months of pregnancy and now one month of uh, forgetting what sleep feels like. So eventually I might get back on social media. Suddenly you'll have those days where she sleeps through the night. You're like, wow, I'd forgotten what it was like to sleep. I didn't realize I was missing that. And then it'll just you'll, she slept yeah. for like five hours the other night and my like we my like with between feedings and my wife and i like look at each other like oh like, it was like we were seeing with new have been closed for a long time eyes so. yes well i would tell you if you have a second one it'll be you'll be shocked at how quickly you've forgotten how what it's like to be sleep deprived 
And then again, how relief, how relieving it is to be able to wake, uh, sleep again. It's like being sick, right? You feel terrible when you're sick, and then you, you oh, I feel like I could be healthy. And then once you're healthy for about a week, you forget what it was like to be sick again because you're just healthy. It's a human condition, right? Well, yeah. thanks again for being on the show. And uh, oh, my thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. Thank you.